Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Porter here on 970 WDAY. Happy Monday, Natil. How was your weekend? Too short. I suppose you had all those new uh, Steam purchases you were playing. Oh, I don't. I, there's. I'm not going to get to all of them for quite some time, I'm afraid. But that's. Well, you, you played some of them. Well, yes. Hey, did you see that the uh, they're coming? Out, Nintendo's coming out with a Super Nintendo Classic now. Yep, that was the uh, SNES. The SNES Classic was officially announced and given a release date, and the list of games was revealed all about two hours ago. I think I'm actually more excited about that than I am like the classic NES. Like I the the first Nintendo I I remember getting the classic NES for Christmas when I was living in Alaska when I was six or seven years old, um, and and, and it was great. You know I I got that I had Super Mario Duck Hunt obviously right away the game that came with it and then uh, the Legend of Zelda, those are my first video games ever and so. I've always loved that, but I feel like the Super Nintendo is when I really hit my stride with uh, with gaming. I feel like that was the big one. That was the one I used the most. See, so I'm I excited. Yeah, I didn't have I didn't have a lot going for me for um, like television consoles when I was really young. Uh, my my mom didn't want us to have video game systems until one year for Christmas. I said I was still young enough um, that Santa was bringing us gifts, and I wanted. I told mom that I wanted Santa to bring me a Game Boy or I didn't want anything at all. Like a Game Boy was the only thing I wanted. And then I got a Game Boy. Santa brought me a Game Boy that year. And then it was just downhill from there. Then we got an yeah. N64 and it was it was fabulous. But I didn't, so I never had an, an NES or an SNES or um, an Atari or a Dreamcast or a Sega, like a Sega Genesis, um, even like a PS1. That's all stuff that I missed. Yeah, boy. Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm actually looking forward. I, I like it. These old. I like these old games. I like showing my kids like the games that I played, because uh, they're still fun. I mean, it's still fun to go back and play those, especially now. Like like expectations. I remember all throughout the time I was. It was always this expectation that each new game had better graphics and better. You know, better everything, bigger, better. I think the sort of mobile like tablets and and cell phones and stuff like that have. Have renewed an interest, I think, in those sort of simpler games too, right? I mean, does that make any sense? Because uh, a lot of people, you know, playing apps and stuff like that. I, I think those older games are still fun. Like they're simpler. The graphics aren't as splashy or anything like that, but they're still they're still just they're still fun to play, which is the most important part. Definitely. And the nice thing about the sort of classic games is that you don't have to sit down and play them for a really long period of time. A lot of the, the new games on the new consoles and things like that are some, is something that you end up sitting down and spending an hour with, two hours with, something like that. Right. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you could play a couple world, a couple levels of Mario World in like 10 minutes. Yeah. Similarly, apps on your phone, you're usually not spending more than 10, 15 minutes playing the game at one time. I remember like what saving a game was a big deal. Well, that's a, a console, huge deal, right? Like you couldn't. A lot of those, those, like you couldn't save your game. You couldn't save your progress, right? So there was a lot of leaving the Nintendo on, but turning the TV off, and then getting really mad when somebody would turn the Nintendo off because they destroyed your progress or whatever. Anyway, enough video game talk. We got real work to do here in a tail. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand. If you want to join the program, eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. Coming up at one thirty, uh, North Dakota Insurance Commissioner John Godfrey's uh, coming on. We're going to get his uh, thoughts 
on this health care bill as it begins to emerge. North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp saying that the Senate version of the health care bill is even worse than the House version. Uh, we'll see what our insurance commissioner has to say about these these reforms that are being proposed and what it could mean for North Dakota. So that's coming up at 1.30. Uh, right now, I want to talk a little bit about the minimum wage. Now, Natil, you'll remember earlier this year, we had on State Representative Marvin Nelson on this program about legislation he was proposing regarding North Dakota's minimum wage. You remember that? I do indeed, sir. Yeah, he was. Uh, his proposal would have taken, right now, North Dakota doesn't technically have a minimum wage. We default to the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 per hour currently. Um, His legislation would have moved the state minimum wage up to $9.25 an hour, so a $2 per hour hike, and then it would have created automatic increases tied to the rate of inflation. So basically, as inflation went up, so too would the minimum wage in the state of North Dakota. Uh, we had him on the program. Uh, he, you know, I obviously argued with him because I don't like minimum wage policy. I asked him about, you know, the negative effects of driving up the cost of low wage labor. And he told me, I quote, there's very little in the way of negative effects. Well, over in Seattle, that city has raised their minimum wage. They also have done a $2 per hour increase, albeit they're going they went from eleven dollars an hour to thirteen dollars an hour for large employers um it's the second big increase in less than a year right so it was even lower than 11 before so they're they're moving their wage up pretty fast now a team of economists and i'm reading this from 538.com a team of economists at the university of washington have studied this and what its impacts on the labor market are i quote from the article the increase led to steep declines in employment for low-wage workers and a drop in hours for those who kept their jobs. Crucially, the negative impact of lost jobs and hours more than offset the benefits of higher wages. On average, low-wage workers earned $125 per month less because of the higher wage, a small but significant decline. So essentially what's happening here is the city of Seattle passed policy which inflated the cost of low-skill, low-wage workers. The employers in that city responded rationally by working to control those costs. And so what they did is they essentially employed fewer low-skill, low-wage, minimum-wage workers. They also gave those workers fewer hours. And I imagine there's all sorts of different ways they could do that. They could just, you know, reduce the number of of workers they have and and give the remaining workers more work. Maybe they uh, spread out some of those to to higher-wage, higher-skill workers who could perhaps handle those tasks you know, quicker or or more efficiently, however the case may be, earning a larger wage, of course. Uh, But I I think the larger point here is clear. There is a negative effect. When when the government just steps in and, as a matter of policy, inflates the cost of a group of workers without necessarily increasing their value to the employer, the employer is not just going to sit still for that. They're going to react to that. And they're going to react in perfectly rational, perfectly understandable ways. And the people who are going to get hurt are the low-wage workers. So here in North Dakota, the Democrats, specifically State Representative Marvin Nelson, wanted a $2 increase, an hour increase in the state minimum wage and then wanted automatic increases going forward tied to the rate of inflation. He says that wouldn't hurt the job markets. That wouldn't hurt these workers. And I think he's wrong.
And I think the example of Seattle proves it. If we muck around with the costs of these workers, there are ramifications for that. What do you think? Do you support the minimum wage? Do you think we ought to increase the minimum wage? Is it something that, that, is it good policy? Is it something that you would support? Or do you think that it hurts these workers? Because I think the latter is true. Love to hear from you. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report on 970 WDAY, talking about the minimum wage. You know, Democrats earlier this year during the legislative session proposed a bill which would have increased North Dakota's minimum wage by $2 an hour. The city of Seattle has, well, their most recent increase went up another $2 an hour from $11 to $13 an hour, and they've done other increases previous to that even. So their minimum wage has gone up very quickly. What it has resulted in is less less hours, less employment, less income for the very low-wage workers it's supposed to help. So that's my question for you. Does the minimum wage help or does it hurt? What do you think? 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, Jess sends in a message, says, I think raising the minimum wage just causes employers to hire less workers, and it drives up the cost of goods and services. You know, that last part is something that I haven't mentioned as well, because where does all this money come from, right? I mean, if you're talking about raising the minimum wage $2 an hour, at some point, now I, I I think the first the first thing most employers are going to do is they're going to cut payroll, right? If if minimum wage workers, if you're going to drive up the cost of minimum wage workers, you're going to be butting up against workers who are more competent, more efficient, because they just have. I mean, I'm not saying minimum wage workers are bad people or anything, but generally they're people who have they don't have the skills or or whatever to to command a larger wage in the market. So if you're you're essentially driving them up the the wage ladder without necessarily, you know, giving them the skills or anything that, that, that they have to compete at those higher levels. So what happens is if it's going to cost the same, you're just going to hire other people anyway, and you're probably going to have to hire fewer of those people. So payroll is going to be the first thing to go. But at some point, too, there's going to be a bleed-over effect into the cost of goods and services, right? I mean, if, if you continue to increase it, which, again, that's what's happening in Seattle where they're seeing one big increase after another. That's what would have happened in North Dakota had Representative Nelson's bill passed when we would have had automatic increases in, in the wage tied to inflation, at some point, those increases are going to spill over into the cost of goods and labor, right? I mean, they have to. The money's not, not just going to appear from some magic pot of gold. The money's got to come from somewhere. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. When, when I hear our friends on the left talk about this, talk about the minimum wage, what I often hear them say is that, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So the idea is if we take the minimum, right, if, if, if we take that minimum wage that anybody can earn and we push it upwards, then what happens is, is that's, that's going to push everybody up. But here's the thing. Push this, I mean, everything is relative, right? 
So if you move the bottom up and that moves everything else up, what have you really accomplished? Because the people at the bottom are still going to be at the bottom. And they're not necessarily going to have any more purchasing power because you have raised the cost of labor across the board. And that cost of labor is built into every good and service that we buy. So in the long run, what have you really accomplished? I mean, have you really improved anybody? Right? I mean, that's the idea. If, if we push up those wages, we're going to improve the lot of the people who are at the bottom of the wage ladder. But I think that's the wrong way to help them. It's just to arbitrarily give them raises because the government waved, waved its magic wand and made it so. That's not the way to do it. I, I think the way to do it, if, if you want to improve people's lot in life, you have to give them opportunity. Right? And so you do that by education you do that by getting them experience and and by the way in some ways you're actually going to keep people at the bottom of the wage ladder locked there by raising the minimum wage because you're going to lower the number of opportunities that they have available to them because again that's the example of seattle where we raise the minimum wage and what happens well there's fewer opportunities for low-wage workers and if there's fewer opportunities for low-wage workers, then how are they going to get the sort of experience? How are they going to get the foot in the door that allows them to move up that ladder, that allows them to improve their skills, improve their experience, improve their reputation to the point where they can command more money in the job market? Because that's what it takes, right? You've got to have something to offer. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a minimum wage worker or you're a college graduate, I can't tell you how many I mean, how many kids I went to high school with that went off to college, they got a big degree, and then they expected to just march into the job market and start earning seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. And you know what? It doesn't work that way because even if you have a college degree, a lot of times you got to start at the bottom of a ladder. And the only way to move your way up that ladder is experience, is time, is reputation. Arbitrarily raising the minimum wage accomplishes none of those things. It doesn't change anything about the person who is earning that wage. It doesn't make their labor more valuable. It doesn't make their contributions to their employer more important. It just makes them more expensive. The best way to think about the minimum wage that explains its, its actual real-world impact is that the minimum wage essentially works out to be a tax on low-wage workers. And because it works out to be a tax on low-wage workers, anything you tax, you get less of. Right? So, so essentially what we're doing by inflating the costs of low-wage workers, low-skill workers, what we're doing to employers is we, we, are, we are instituting a tax. We are saying we're going to make it more expensive for you to hire these people. Who, by the way, are, are the people who most need the jobs. Are the people who most need the experience. The people who don't have a lot of skills, who don't have a lot of experience. I mean, if you're making minimum wage, you are marginally attached to the job market, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, maybe you're young. Maybe there's other things that have happened in your life or whatever that, that you're just entering the job market. Whatever the case would be, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you don't have a lot of skills yet. It just means you don't have a lot of experience yet. And so the last thing we ought to be doing to you is making it harder for you to get that experience, making it harder for you to get those skills. And that's what the minimum wage does. That's what the minimum wage does. And if you've already got a job and you're working the minimum wage, and, and somebody and some politician campaigning on the banner under the banner of we're doing good things for you is all of a sudden going to make you cost more to your employer, they are putting you at risk. 
They are making it more likely that you're going to get laid off. They're making it more likely that you're going to see your hours cut. Those are not good things. The minimum wage hurts the very people it intends to help. It's a bad idea. It's good politics, right? Because politics, we don't, a lot of times we don't expect people to think deeply about these things. But it's counterproductive policy. All right, health insurance coming up next. Let's go to Insurance Commissioner John Godfrey joins me. 701-293-9000, We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report on 970 WDAY. 701-293-9000, that's your local number, 888-970-9329, that's toll free, email talk at WDAY.com. On with me now is North Dakota Insurance Commissioner John Godfrey. John, how are you? Doing very well, thanks for having me on, Rob. Are you having a good Monday? You know, it's a busy Monday, they all seem to be busy, but uh, there's a a few issues going around with some health care things going around at the federal level, so it's been uh, keeping us busy for sure. Well, that's what we want to talk about. You know, last time I had you on, the House had just, I, I, they were either about to or had just recently passed their iteration of health care reform. And the caveat that we kept putting on it is that what the Senate passes is going to be different from what the House passes. So there was really nothing, there were a lot of unknowns, I, I, I yep. guess is what we were saying. Well, now, now the Senate has unveiled their version of a health care plan. And I guess the question for you is, what are the implications you're seeing for North Dakota? Obviously, knowing that a lot's going to change, there's still a lot of debate to be had. But what is this Senate health care bill? What could it mean for North Dakota? Well, the big thing with the Senate health care bill is it deals an awful lot with Medicaid and, and how Medicaid expansion has rolled out, in our, especially in North Dakota. We're one of the states that expanded Medicaid. Um, it talks about kind of walking that back a little bit. And essentially getting either, you know, the states who've expanded and taken that population who are now on Medicaid and moving them back from that 90% match, which we're at now, back down to the, about the 52, 58% FMAP. That's the technical term for what our traditional Medicaid is. So there's a lot of, there's the, the a vast majority of the bill deals with some Medicaid implications and what that does, um, you know, across the state. That's probably best left to the governor's office and, and human services who actually administer and, and run that program. Um, in terms of the insurance side of things and how what that does, it's it's very similar to the House bill. There's some there's some changes to it. Um, you know the the changes to the subsidies. It, it opens it up a little bit broader. Uh, the House bill limits it from 100% of the federal poverty level to the 400% level. The Senate goes from 0% to, to 350. And and where that's important is, you know, as the states look to have to pay more for their Medicaid expansion as that match drops. Folks are likely going to be moving, be either pushed into the individual market, or the state may decide no longer to do the Medicaid expansion program. Uh, so there's the, the overall. I mean, the umbrella. I guess the umbrella statement is it's it's a it deals a lot with the financial side of insurance, um, and it's very similar to the House bill. Um, I guess in terms of what what the average North Dakota can expect, to, North Dakotan can expect to see is it does repeal the mandate, it does repeal the employer mandates. It gets rid of some of the health care taxes, so there should be some downward pressure on premiums. Um, but I guess I'm not sure if we've quite found that sweet spot yet uh, with, with actually 
addressing some of the main issues with, with Obamacare. Um, and it also doesn't do anything to address the rising cost of health care, and that's the true driver of, of the cost of insurance. I mean, you look at if it's going to be expensive to receive health care treatment, uh, your health insurance is going to be expensive, and, and this bill doesn't really touch on any of that. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. So what should they be doing? I mean, what's, what's missing out of these bills that ought to be in there? Well, what, we'd, what we've been kind of banging the drum on is, is turn this back over to the states. Uh, you know, you look at what North Dakota was like, the pre-ACA, pre-Obamacare, and, and what, we're at, what we're like now, virtually the same number of percentage of people are, are going uninsured. Um, so what we've seen is uh, the cost of health insurance has increased dramatically. Uh, you know, our deductibles have gone up, so the, 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 the level of coverage is, is, in my opinion, is lesser than what we've had before. Um, so if you can just turn this back over to the states and allow us to manage our marketplace like we do for every other line of insurance, I think you can get some better outcomes. The issue with the, the Senate bill and, and even with the House bill as well is they do some of that. They, they, they take some steps to move it to back to the state control, but everything that comes out of D.C. seems to come with some strings attached. Uh, there's, you know, there's a 7%, 14%, 21%, up to 35% the states have to kick in to, to cover some of these programs. And, you know, we just got through a legislative session, and, and Rob, I'll tell you, I'm not sure where we're going to get that money in North Dakota to, to, to actually participate in some of these waiver programs. So uh, where I'm a little bit frustrated, I think, on, on our side is that um, I, I would like to see it kind of kind of back out. And, and granted, Congress is under some pretty heavy restrictions trying to do this through reconciliation. Uh, so they're very limited at how they can address, how they can attack this, this deal. It's got to be basically financial and budgetary. And by doing that, they only need the 51-vote threshold to get through the Senate. If they wanted to actually look at kind of really attacking the heart of the ACA and, and really making some significant changes, they'd then need, then need to get to that 60-vote threshold, which is where they're running into some roadblocks. 701-293-9000, talking with uh, North Dakota Insurance Commissioner John Gottfried. Uh, you can also email talk at WDAY.com. Now, in a, in a moment, a moment ago, you just said, you know, turn this back over to the states. What does that look like exactly? I, I mean, because we obviously have all sorts of, of federal health care policy and then some of the some of the programs. Uh, but I guess just talking about the insurance marketplace, how, how do we turn it back over to the states? What, what does that look like in terms of policy? Well, it's similar to what they're trying to do with the waiver programs. They're allowing states to submit these waivers to waive out a certain provisions of the ACA. Uh, whether that's the essential health benefits, um, you know, under the Senate bill, you can waive out of the essential health benefits. They can do some different actuarial standards, uh, you know, so that, that really impacts um, how companies are rated and how they can how they can price out their products. Uh, but again, with that, that comes, you know, it's got to be budget neutral, and if it costs anything, uh, the states are then responsible for for, pay, for paying for part of the federal government implementation of that. So essentially, it's saying, here's our program; you can implement it in the states following our our pretty strict rules. Uh, but then also on the back end, you've got to pay for, for a good share of it. And, and so I would guess, you know, I think Governor Burgum has been famous to saying of, of kind of waiving the waivers and just kind of allowing us to, to set what, our, what, uh, what plans would work for our population. And under the current federal rules, we can't do that. Under the current federal health, you know, health laws, we can't, we can't say, okay, these are the plans we'd like to see offered in our state, the catastrophic health or, or the different levels of, of coverage. We're not allowed to do that. That's kind of been mandated through the ACA. And, and this bill really doesn't do a lot to 
address some of those changes. And, and uh, granted, it's, it's again, Congress is hamstrung by this reconciliation process. So it's, it's, it's difficult at the time right now. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Senator Heidi Heitkamp is out, and, and she blasted the Senate bill earlier today on CNBC. Uh, she said, quote, this isn't Obamacare reform. This is entitlement reform. Uh, she goes on, she says, you have to look at it from a mile high, and they're telling you we're going to keep coverage the same, no one's going to get hurt, and we're going to take billions of dollars out of health care. Uh, she goes on to predict that uh, once it's parsed, people have a chance to look at it. It's only going to get more difficult. Um, what, what do you make of those comments? I mean, she's saying this is even worse than the House bill. I, your argument is, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff here, but we're not addressing root causes. I mean, yeah, is that... And that, that's, that's kind of my, my standpoint. I think, you know, to address Senator Heitkamp's concern, I think you've got to back up and say, you know, our status quo, where we're at right now, isn't, isn't a good position. Um, you know, North Dakota, we've been we've been fairly, uh, I guess, stable, and we're 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 in a fairly good spot. We've got three carriers in our individual marketplace. But for the folks who who want to rail on anything that that Congress does, um, they they're not taking into account that in a lot of states, uh, in a growing number of states, there are no carriers in that individual marketplace that that Obamacare seeks to address. I saw so, I saw a number, and they were projecting that I I think by like. The end of this year, or maybe the end of next year, I'm, I'm forgetting. I don't have it in front of me, but, but like something like 41 percent of counties in the United States would have only one insurance provider available. Yeah, that's 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 fairly accurate from the numbers I've seen as well, and and that's really not a competitive marketplace, as you know. And and there's a number of counties and a, a number of states even that that again have no coverage in those in those those areas. So what do those folks do who are on the individual marketplace that there's nothing offered for them? And so it's it's a little bit uh, I guess disingenuous. For, in my eyes, to, to, to rail on, on this, knowing full well that the, the current status quo is, is essentially crumbling under our feet. Now, granted, again, in North Dakota, we've been somewhat insulated from that, and we're, we're very fortunate, but I also don't want to get to the end of the cliff before we start making some decisions. You know, you don't need to fall off the cliff before you go, oh, this is a bad idea. Do you feel like, I mean, what... Obviously, I mean, you have all these other you know places where they're they're losing options, where they're going down to, to just one like one available. Why has North Dakota been insulated from that, and are we at risk of that in the future if nothing changes? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, our population. Um, you know, we are we're one of the few states that's getting younger, uh, which does help. Uh, we've got a you know as a as our population as a whole is considered. But how, how much longer to... are we going to keep getting younger? I mean, a lot <laughs> of us getting younger was was the product of. The oil boom, and obviously no, that's over for now. I mean, I, I feel like some of those those demographic changes are going are going to start to reverse a little bit. I agree, and um, but at the same time, we've we've also got a, a relatively small percentage that are on that individual marketplace. So again, we're a little bit insulated from there. You know, we're at about I think eight percent of our, our of our population is participates in that individual marketplace, whereas other states are much higher. And at the same, also, you know, we're one of the few states that have prior approval for our rating system. Um, so. Insurance companies got to submit rates to us, uh, and, and we do our best to balance, you know, keeping them competitive as well as uh, affecting the consumer. But at the end of the day, um, you know, our risks come down to they're, we're much different than other other states, and we've been able to, I guess, weather the storm a little bit better. Better. Now that's not to say things won't change. Um, you know, there's uh, there's cost sharing reduction. There's some of these things that our insurance companies are relying heavily on to stay in that marketplace that need to continue or should continue, at least in the short term, until we get this all figured out, those are up in flux. If, if we find out that those are pulled, 
um, you know, at, at any point, uh, we could our marketplace could change dramatically. But you know, as far as exactly why have we remained competitive and why do we still have three carriers in the marketplace? Um, I think it has a lot to do with our population, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, you know, kind of how we go about business and, and what our our state does. And it may be best left to answer by the insurance carriers, but I think that's what I believe in. If John Gottfried were emperor of America or benevolent dictator or president or whatever, and you could send one, you know, marching order to Congress when it comes to this reform, what would it be? I would say just let us handle health insurance like we handle all other insurances. And that is, there is there's guideposts and there's fence posts put up by the federal government that kind of just say you got to stay within this field. Uh, but the, the actual day-to-day decisions, the individual decisions are, are impacted on a state-by-state basis. And that's something we're looking for. We haven't, frankly, haven't had that for a while. And uh, at this point, kind of what we're seeing from some of these, the, the bills that have been put forward is it seems almost like they're, they're passing some of the mess onto the states and, and then putting us financially on the hook for it, uh, which is a dangerous game to get down. Again, giving our budget constraints, I'm not sure where we're going to come up with the money to, to make some of these impactful changes. John, thank you for your time. Thanks, Rob. Anytime. It's John Godfrey, North Dakota Insurance Commissioner. I don't know. I like that. I, I think that's what we got to do. I think we got we to let the states get back in the driver's seat here, but one of the feds ever give up control of anything. All right, we'll wrap up the show after this. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com if you want to join in. We'll be right back. Don't go away. I'm giving up on you. How could I ever call you? Welcome back. Rob Report on 970 WDAY. 701-293-9000. is a toll-free number. Email talk at WDAY.com. Jay Thomas show coming up next, of course, as always. Uh, I'll be joining Jay for the first part of his show as well, so stay tuned for that. Um, Natil, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of uh, what our insurance commissioner had to say about health insurance reform? I think he's got the right idea. I, I, I think the problem is we're trying to implement, and, and we do this a lot, where we try to implement solutions from the federal level, which end up being sort of one-size-fits-all policies for every part of the country, or they riddle them so full of exemptions and waivers and everything else that it becomes this Byzantine sort of policy that nobody really understands anyway. When really, I, I, I feel like a lot of times we ought to just let the locals address this. Yeah, my problem is that letting the locals address it is going to create situations and scenarios where right here, for example, if I'm living on the North Dakota side of the river, I could be getting better or worse health care than someone who lives two miles across the river in Minnesota. But isn't that the point of federalism, right? I mean, what's, what's, uh, uh, there was a Supreme Court justice who had a, 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 you know, a sort of famous saying about the states, and he called them laboratories of democracy, right, where we can, we can do that. We can, de- we can experiment with different types of policies yeah, but, but that not, people can choose. We're not choose. talking about property taxes. We're not talking about job markets. We're not talking about the minimum wage. We're talking about the literal care that it takes to ensure that people live. I don't see the I don't see the distinction you're drawing there. How can you not see the distinction there? The it's people, as important. People who have people who have cancer or debilitating illnesses 
that they didn't ask for, that they didn't that they didn't do anything wrong to attain, can be treated differently based on a two mile difference over a state line. That's ridiculous. I don't I don't think it is. I mean, I I think the problem is I don't I don't see health care necessarily as a right. In fact, I don't think. I don't think you can see it as a right. How can right? you because, not see because, it as a right? Because it's a it's it's care. Somebody else has to provide it, right? And if you have if you have a right for them to provide you with something, then they're slaves. And I don't think that's how it works. That's not how the world works. It's a service, right? I want everybody to be healthy. I want everybody to be able to get access to the sort of health care they want. I want everybody to get access to the sort of food that they want. But we don't consider food a right. You have to buy food. You have to pay the the the, the uh, grocery store. Nobody's nobody's creating a universal food plan. Nobody's even calling for that. There are things like food banks and everything that exist throughout this right. Country. And I and I don't have I don't have a problem with with healthcare safety net programs either. But I I think the problem is 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 you're you're setting it up that that we have to have this universal one size fits all policy. And I'm telling you. It's not going to work in a country as big and diverse as ours is. I'm not looking for a one-size-fits-all policy. I'm looking for a one-size-is-available-to-all. Yeah. I just don't I, – I don't know how we get there. I, I mean, I, I don't know how we get there and, and, and implement it in a way that's going to be cost-effective, right? Because at the end of the day, cost has to be a factor. And that's the thing that scares me is, is no matter what, cost has to be a part of this discussion – because somebody's got to pay the bill, whether it's the government or whatever. And, and I can tell you, I would rather be in charge of paying for my own health care, knowing that I might not always be able to afford all the health care I need, than to have the government deciding for me how much health care I can access. That's the thing that I am very afraid of. Yeah, well, of. I Caller. hope that you don't ever get cancer, Rob. Well, I hope that I have worked hard enough to have very, very good coverage if I do get cancer. Caller, Vern, you're up. What's going on? we got just a couple minutes left. Yeah, real quick, uh, I should be able to buy insurance wherever I want. I don't need the government telling me. I was without health insurance for about five months last year. I couldn't get on a, another program until a start date. I did not use any health insurance, but yet I had to pay the federal government a penalty for not having insurance. And if I was worth $100 million, I should be able to take care of my own medical expenses. I should not be required to have it. Uh, it is not a right to have health insurance. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the call, Fern. I think a lot of the problem, like if you go back when we had all those numbers back before Obamacare, there was like 20 million or 30 million or 40 million, some number that, that Democrats kept throwing around saying these are all the uninsured people in America. But if you looked at that, a lot of those people had insurance available to them. They just weren't using it. They just weren't accessing it for whatever reason. But we're out of time, so we'll have to debate this another day. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. I'm Rob Port. You can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com, North Dakota's most popular political blog. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again.